wearing my Catholic school plaid and a forest green polo shirt. I dipped into Mrs. Ditta's history classroom to catch what was happening on TV. I saw smoke. And then, while still watching, I saw a second flash and billow of black, which we would later learn was the second plane hitting the World Trade Center. This is what that memorial looks like today. Just 48 hours ago marked the 19th anniversary of 9-11 attacks here in the U.S. We all remember where we were, how we felt, and the massive collective grief that ensued. It seemed as if the world had stopped. And in the days and weeks ahead, what rose from the ashes was a stunning unity and care for our brothers and sisters. It seemed as if suddenly there was no road rage. There was no demanding for a supervisor. There was no political bickering. And why? Americans all wanted the same thing. Our collective conscience transcended our individual desires. And what it seemed like everyone wanted was what? Comfort, safety, justice, and peace. In a 2013 article in The Atlantic called The Psychology of Unity After Tragedy, author and psychotherapist Joseph Burgo wrote this. During wartime, or in the immediate aftermath of a terrorist attack, the normally complex world becomes much simpler for most people. It's good versus evil, us against them. Taking refuge in such a belief assuages our fears. We tend to forget the irritations and resentments that might have preoccupied us just last week. There was a collective black and white conscience that created unity in an us as Americans. And for only a few short weeks, we were inextricably tied in solidarity. If you joined us last week, you know that this is part two of us exploring John 12 in our Messiah series. In part one, Jesus showed us the kind of king he came to be, a king of peace who died for all people. In many ways, this was in direct opposition to the kind of savior the crowd was expecting. And I posed this question, do we really want Jesus to be our king? And if so, the answer to that question has implications for our discipleship and how we live out our, our lives in the world. And now, building off of who Jesus is as king, in the final verses of John 12, we must ask a second question, and that is this. Do we really want what Jesus wants for the world? As the church, as a body of believers, we might decide that, yes, we will follow Jesus as king, but now we must consider what implications his kingship has for all of humanity. Because it doesn't take much to see the individual irritations and resentments that are preoccupying our relationships 
in conversations today? Is there collective unity and agreement within the body of Christ that might inform and yet transcend those individual irritations and resentments politically, racially, economically, to publicly display King Jesus's desire for the world. Played out in everyday life, I see my kids wrestle with this idea of collective desire and agreement all the time. We'll say to one kid who's perhaps reaching his or her little paw into the homemade apple pie that we baked over Labor Day weekend, and we'll say, if we see you sneaking for the pie before dinner, you won't get TV privileges. But here's what you must keep in mind, little human. If your TV privileges are taken away, what that also means is that those privileges are taken away for your sibling as well. And they don't get to watch either. And that does something in them. Because it's no longer just about their individual feelings or decisions. They are called to a higher altitude to consider the experience of someone they love. As John closes out Jesus' public ministry here in John 12, he's calling us to higher altitude. To reaffirm our own convictions, yes, but to also consider how that belief reflects Jesus' desire for the ones he loves. In order to consider this question more closely, then we have to remind ourselves why Jesus came. Let's skip all the way to the end of the chapter and work backwards. Jesus says in verse 46, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for those who hear my words but do not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's verses 46 and 47. We've seen this theme of light before, haven't we? In the very beginning of time, God spoke in Genesis and said, let there be what? Yeah, light. Light gave life to the rest of the world at the beginning, and it gives life now. It grows the plants that we eat. It gives clarity and direction. It exposes and brings forward the truth. And in the beginning of John's first chapter, he says, in him, in the word, in Jesus was life. And that life was the light of all people. Jesus wants to save and bring life. Do we really want what Jesus wants for the world? Let's put a bookmark there and talk about the nature of belief that John shows us for a few minutes because the nature of our belief has everything to do with our question for this morning. First, we have to talk about the reality of unbelief. Let's look at verse 37. John says, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, in the presence of the crowd and of the leaders, they still would not believe in him. Jesus was with people who saw what he did with their very eyes, and yet seeing doesn't always equal believing, does it? 
You've seen the magicians who show you a disappearing coin trick or a box with a person who's supposedly been cut in half, but really they're fine and there's probably two of them somehow in there somewhere. And we show up for the entertainment but don't actually believe that any of it's true. We understand it's all illusion. And why? Because our trust is in ideas like object permanence, or we trust that the magician knows that he or she cannot legally harm a human being or a creature in front of a live audience. In the same way, there were some who saw Jesus, but they didn't put their trust in what they were actually seeing. In Greek, the word for belief is pistuyo, which means to have faith or to put one's trust in, spiritually or otherwise. John tells us that this is explicitly a fulfillment of two prophecies from Isaiah in the Old Testament. We won't dig too deeply into these this morning, but we learn from them that these prophecies in them that there is a God who has blinded people's eyes and hardened people's hearts. However, there is free will on our behalf. We get to decide whether or not to accept or reject the message of God. Ultimately, when it comes to belief, we must ask, in what or whom am I placing my ultimate trust? As we process all the messages we receive from multiple platforms and mediums, may we repeatedly ask church for the spirit to reveal to us that which is from God and that which is simply a distracting optical illusion. Take our trust in technology, for example, and our trust in it as a source of the information that we receive. Our lives revolve around it. Even if we have healthy boundaries or resist it completely, we rely on it for everyday functioning and communication in many cases. I recently watched a stunning documentary called The Social Dilemma which talks about the obsessive appeal of social networking. And in it, author and computer scientist Jaron Lanier says, we've created an entire global generation of people who are raised within a context where the very meaning of communication, the very meaning of culture is manipulation. We've put deceit and sneakiness at the absolute center of everything that we do. He's talking about all of these different social networking platforms that are literally created and wired to manipulate us as users. With manipulation built into our technology, what else are we relying on that might have massive impact on our belief and where we place our trust? I wonder what impacted the belief and trust of those who wouldn't put their trust in Jesus. What else was there that was manipulating their feelings of trust and belief? Here is where some of us might say, okay, but you're not talking about me though. I personally believe in and trust Jesus fully. I'm a follower of Christ. I wore the WWJD bracelets back in the 90s. I'm good, right? 
And yet this is what I want us to see this morning, church, and it's an invitation to go deeper. Belief indicates what we trust, but it doesn't necessarily inform our love. You can believe in something so deeply and yet not give yourself fully or not be informed in the way of love by the thing in which you believe. And if our love isn't in alignment with the love of Jesus, we won't want or live out what he wants for the world. Let's look at what John notes about many, even among the leaders who did believe in Jesus. Let's take verse 42. But because of the Pharisees, these are those leaders who put their trust in Jesus and actually believed in Jesus. They would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human glory more than the glory of God. Or they loved praise from humans more than they loved praise from God. This is a type of belief that when combined with misaligned love is belief with a lid. And what happens when you place a lid over a candle, for example? You can't see the candle and the light doesn't shine. Belief plus misaligned love is belief with a lid. This is what was true for the Jewish leaders. There was a real fear that if they professed their faith in Jesus, they'd lose everything. We've talked about this before. That was that was uh, personally threatened in their lives because of who Jesus was. We have to remember that as men in a patriarchal society, the risk of being thrown out of the synagogue was a terrible fate in a culture where your entire identity was tied up with your place in your family and in the community. The pursuit of honor and status, the avoidance of shame and being found wrong was almost obsessive, kind of like our Western cultural value of individual achievement and climbing the success ladder. This type of belief, though it's real and sincere, if partnered with misaligned love, produces a faith in Jesus that in the world, they don't experience it at all. They don't get to see that faith lived out. And if the world doesn't experience our faith or our light, then it remains in darkness. I gotta tell you, when I first read this, just these couple of verses, this hit me like a ton of bricks. Because I grew up believing that belief on its own was enough. And it is for just me. But what about for the world? Question, what are you afraid of? Because if we can identify our fear, we might just trace back to the object of our heart's love and affection. If you fear being lonely for the rest of your life, perhaps your heart's affection is for human companionship. If you fear being mocked or wrong, perhaps your heart's affection is for affirmation. If you fear being powerless, perhaps your heart's affection is for power and authority. If you fear spiders, you're normal. <laughs> but here's the risk we run. If we love the human standards of companionship, 
affirmation, power, and authority, and all of these things in their right place are good things. But if we love these things more than we love the companionship, affirmation, power, and authority of God, fear will win and our light will be held hostage. We're less than eight weeks from a major election. And I fear we're debating the world or finding ourselves paralyzed in the midst of it more than we're loving it, right? Doesn't it seem that way? Perhaps it's because fear really is the driving factor for many of us. Do we really want what Jesus wants for the world? If so, we must ensure our fear is cast out by perfect love found in Christ so that light might actually permeate the darkness in our midst. And light happens when belief is combined with love that's aligned. Back in verses 35 and 36, Jesus said this. You're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Those who walk in the dark do not know where they are going. Put your trust in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. Another version or translation says, as you have the light, believe in the light, then the light will be within you and shining through your lives. Here's the reality, darkness exists. Human trafficking, exploitation, murder, economic injustice. I think of acquaintances right now on the West Coast who are picking up the pieces of their lives, trying to figure out what comes next because of the fires that have ravaged that part of the country. There's been much loss for so many people in this season. And if that's you sitting on the other side of the screen, I just wanna name that. Loss of income, loss of possibility, or sanity, or space, loss of structure, loss of time all to yourself. For me, some of the questions I'm asking are, who or what is safe anymore? (laughs) Who or what can I count on as I process my own journey of the loss of plans and the loss of certainty? But here's our hope, church. Here's my hope. Jesus invites us to put our hope in him to walk in the light so that darkness, although it exists, won't overtake or overwhelm us. Darkness is real, but we do not have to succumb to it. Don't believe that lie. At this point, I love what John says. His detail is so beautiful in the text to me. It says, Jesus is crying out. He's crying out. He's not just simply stating these things. He's crying out. I imagine him in a loud voice. Do you know why I think he's crying out? He knows it's his final public address before his death. And he's speaking the Father's words, the desire of God's heart directly to the world. How beautiful. He is speaking the words of God for the world. And I think he's emphatically urgently wanting us to believe and trust in him. Listen to these words again. Just listen. 
I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for those who hear my words, but do not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Church, I think he's crying out because Jesus loves us. And he loves them too, whoever them is. He loves the people he came for so dearly that he desperately wants even the Jewish leaders to put their trust in him because he came to save, to heal, to preserve, to make whole. Our belief, if it's lidded and impacted by fear and misaligned in its love, perpetuates darkness and keeps us nose down, focused on our individual desires, our irritations, and our resentments. But our belief, if it's combined with love for the Father, informed by this great love that the Father has for us through Jesus Christ, unhindered by fear, proclaimed and lived out as light, intercepts the darkness and drives it away. Do we want healing, not just for us, but for them too? Do we want wholeness, not just for us, but for them too? Do we really want what Jesus wants for the world? I am so personally convicted by this question this morning. I thought about the many times we've put our kids to bed, our oldest too. And usually right before we tiptoe out of the door, if they're still awake, I'll say, hey, Miles, I love you more than bananas. Because he loves bananas. We have to limit him to two bananas a day. That's how much this kid loves bananas. Miles, I love you more than bananas. Brooklyn, I love you more than unicorns. If it's something that they really, really love, like Brooklyn really loves ice cream. Brooklyn, I really love you more than ice cream. And she'll say, Mom, that's a lot. If you love me more than ice cream, that's so much. It's because they have a trust in who I am as their mom, as their parent. And there's an alignment of our love. It's mutual. She knows how much I love her, and I know how much she loves me. Church, Jesus didn't come to judge the world. He came and he said, I love you more than your sin. I love you more than your failure. I love you more than your worst day. I love you more than your shortcomings. And so he willingly gave his life. He came to save the world because God the Father so loved the world. Not just you and me, but our enemy, the oppressor, the opponent, the thief, the convict. Can we love like that, church? Mars Hill, can we love like that? Do we really want what Jesus wants for the world? Here's what I truly believe. Even in the midst of all that's confusing and unknown about this day and age we're living in right now and for the next weeks that are coming up to an election and what holds, uh, what God holds for us in 2021 and beyond, I think starting this morning, if your heart is stirred like mine is, we can be a body of believers who are children of light, 
not hidden under lids and behind our fears. We can intercept the darkness and division of our political landscape and display a third way of unity despite our differing opinions and perspectives. We can meet the tragedy of racial and global injustice with boldness, with empathy, and with humility. We can meet the poverty of our city with overwhelming generosity, which we've seen done so many times through giving at white buckets and, and uh, contributing to our local partners through our, our outreach ministries. We can meet the sting of loss with proximity, the frustration of constant weary change with perseverance. Church, this is how we shine light to a desperate and dark world. So I don't know how the Spirit is speaking to you this morning. As you consider the two questions from this week and last, do we really want Jesus to be our King? And do we want what Jesus wants for the world? May we have the humility to look at our lives in light of who he is and how he loved and why he came. And whether it's reaching out to someone and asking for forgiveness or taking a hiatus away from all the other voices that might be working for manipulation, whether it's to take a sabbatical or really take the Sabbath seriously for rest and to recharge. However the Spirit is speaking, whether you're in your living room and the kids are running around or you're by yourself and the silence is deafening, may we be attentive to the voice of the Spirit right now. Mars Hill, may our hearts long for what Jesus wants. May we fully put our trust in Jesus more than anything or anyone else. May we love nothing more than we love him. Through our lives, May there be a collective unity created in us, not just as, as Americans making it through a storm, but as the body of Christ. And may the world know the saving power and love of Jesus, light of the world. As we come to the table this morning, we are reminded that this meal is a tangible, visible reminder of why Christ came and what he wanted for us and for the world. He came to save. And he did it by sacrificing his very life, everything that he had. We come to this table asking God to examine our hearts as we prepare to receive freely this reminder of salvation secured in Jesus' body and blood. So in that spirit, I say, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death. You proclaim the Lord's death, church, until he comes. So Holy Spirit, come now. Would you rest in these elements and be for us the body and blood of Christ? Would this meal nourish us body and soul? We trust you to do today what you have done for generations in bringing this meal to life. In Christ's name, amen. Friends, we are joined by the world that the Father loved. We are joined by brothers and sisters, not just in our city, in our state, in our country, or our nation, but across the world who are celebrating this meal today, who are proclaiming Christ's death and honoring the sacrifice that he made. And this is the mystery that we proclaim now, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Church, receive who you are the body of Christ.